I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Mark Sullivan, MD, PhD, author, author of The Right to Pain Relief and Other Deep Roots of the Opioid Epidemic. Do we have a right to pain relief? Our belief in a right to pain relief rests on a belief about the nature of pain, namely that pain is a mechanical, impersonal process that originates outside of the individual. But the origins and experience of pain are far more complex, particularly with chronic and or unexplainable pain. Physical pain doesn't operate independently of the person who bears it. It intersects with all of the unique psychological and social factors at work in the individual in his or her life. Dr. Mark Sullivan reveals how popular misconceptions around pain among doctors and the medical community are as much to blame for the opioid epidemic as greedy pharmaceutical companies. Uh, Dr. Sullivan is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of Washington, and one of his most recent articles uh, was published in the Boston Globe. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on today, uh, Dr. Mark Sullivan. Thank you. All right. We're going to be talking about do we have a right to pain? Uh, And apparently there's a whole, obviously, this is what your book is about, misconceptions about pain. So we blame uh, the opioid epidemic, as I said in the intro, on pharmaceuticals. We blame it on doctors, but that's not—that's a really kind of narrow understanding, misunderstanding, I should say, about uh, where the or how the opioid epidemic evolved. Yeah, we're <clears throat> trying to dig beneath the common narrative uh, that focuses on. Purdue Pharma and other companies uh, in their efforts to make a lot of money, but it's important to realize that these companies drew upon concepts and values and policies that had been put in place uh, prior to their marketing efforts. We we really need to take a look, and and this is obviously what you've done in your book, the history of pain and pain management and our expectations for pain and what is pain. And take us back in the beginning of the book where you you talk about our what what pain meant to our society or our culture uh, previous to the 1500s. Pain was something that you say was something that was associated with a moral issue. If you were in pain, it meant God was punishing you or the devil was after you, or it had to do with a lot of moral and religious attitudes towards pain. Yeah. We explain that, you know, although pain has always been a problem for Western society, it's not been the same kind of problem. And prior to 1500, it was a religious problem. Uh, By 1700, it had become a social problem. And since 1900, approximately, it's been a medical problem. So when it was a religious problem, pain uh, threatened the order of the world, because it threatened our faith in a God that was omniscient, omnipotent, and universal. Why would such a God leave us with so much pain and suffering? So when pain was present, uh, it didn't threaten medical or social structures, it threatened religious meaning. And it's important to realize at that time, pain had a role in the world of balancing out 
um, sin, and it helped prepare us for an afterlife uh, with God in heaven. And so pain relief itself uh, was suspect. It, it didn't make sense in a religious context. Um, by the time we get to the 1700s, society is secularizing. No longer is God seen to be active on a daily basis in the world. And instead, we get from, for example, the utilitarians, the idea that society should reduce pain and suffering to a minimum, uh, meaning that pain is now not a threat to religious belief, but to the social order. The more effective a society is, the more it reduces pain and suffering. And we're still in that secular mode of thinking now, but we have uh, given pain over at least this classic physical pain you were describing. We've given it over to medicine to explain, to control, and to hopefully to uh, eliminate. That was one part of the great dream of opioid liberalization that began in the 80s and the 90s was that we were going to reduce not just the pain and suffering of individual patients, but that of society as a whole. So in other words, we're just going to get rid of, or this is the attitude, we're going to get rid of the physical pain. And I want to go back to, you're mentioning the, the you know, the evolution of, or the historic definitions of pain, uh, as you talk about in the book in, what, 1846, a dentist, I guess it was at Mass General, uh, used an anesthetic, which in doing surgery or taking or removing a tumor from a woman and it was she was it was pain free and that that was kind of the beginning of what you're talking about we do deserve pain relief right now we we have the the uh the the medical uh medic we have the medication we can get rid of pain and then it's just then everything will be then everything will be fine and that's is that kind of where it started in the in the middle 1800s well, that's when we began to get anesthesia, and prior to that, surgery had been just a horrific thrash with uh, people having to pin down the person who was getting an amputation or having a tumor removed, and now we could make that person unconscious and insensate to pain. It was an incredible advance, and it taught medicine that pain we thought was inescapable was not. And there was, there's been a general sense of progress w with the control of pain that uh, led to our efforts to control chronic pain with opioids. We uh, were heartened by that uh, anesthesia success. And we thought, you know, progress marches on. We've conquered surgical uh, post-operative pain. We had... Uh, good success with cancer pain in the 70s and 80s with the growth of the hospice and palliative care movement. And in fact, many of those people pioneered the thought that we could do the same thing for non-cancer chronic pain. So that's, okay, chronic pain. Let's talk about that. As people are living longer, I'm assuming that more people are, have chronic pain arthritis, you know, I can name all different kind of chronic diseases, although I guess also chronic pain is viewed as a disease in and of itself. 
So if you uh, people are living longer uh, into their 70s, 80s, and 90s, they're going to be suffering from chronic pain, uh, which kind of changes everything because what people in the turn of the century live to be 40. So you're, I, I don't want to answer the question, but so we have all these people suffering from chronic pain, but opioids are not the answer is what you're saying. We have to look at the whole picture, the whole individual, and what does pain mean to them from a psycho, psychological, sociological perspective? And how do we manage it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it has been argued that the prevalence, you know, how common chronic pain is, is going up, like you said, due to aging, due to some other things as well. But in fact, uh, opioid use grew much faster than our population got older. And it's important to recognize that the group of patients where we saw incredible growth in opioid use was not the elderly, at least not originally. We're seeing that somewhat now, but it was really middle-aged, working-age people uh, who had not arthritis, but back pain or fibromyalgia, neck pain, where we saw the uh, astounding growth in opioid use over the past few decades. So it's been a change in values and what pain we think has to be reduced, eliminated, or treated rather than some basic change in the prevalence of pain that motivated uh, our opioid prescribing. As a psychiatrist, what do we do? How do we manage our pain in a different way? Not just an, you know, re- requiring or requesting just immediate relief, say from one's physician, and the physician, you know, this is, you know, I sees you for fifteen minutes, and well, okay, let's just give you the pain relief, and and then everybody's happy, and they're not really, and the pain doesn't actually go away. But uh, so, where do we go from here? So I think you've put your finger on the problem, which is that primary care physicians who, in fact, see most chronic pain and have done most of the opioid prescribing, they were kind of flummoxed by patients who came in, let's say, in the 90s and said, don't you believe I'm in pain? Don't you believe I deserve relief? And doctors thought, well, of course I do. I, I believe you, and I think you deserve relief. And they reached for the prescription pad to provide that relief because we have very few tools other than opioids that provide immediate relief. And that led to where we've come uh, since that time. An alternative model uh, would look at... Uh, like you said, more of the whole person. As a psychiatrist who works in a pain clinic, I get a lot of questions, oh, do you treat the physical pain or the mental pain? To which I respond, yes. Meaning that um, in my work, the distinction between the two forms of pain is somewhat artificial. They reinforce each other. And uh, in chronic pain in particular, uh, you have to look at both. Um, We now understand that many forms of chronic pain are are what we call nociplastic, meaning that they are a change in brain sensitivity to nociceptive or tissue damaging input. And it really requires a whole person approach to the care. 
Um, but the temptation of the immediate relief that opioids provide is very strong, and it's still quite controversial to limit or try to reduce uh, opioid prescribing because of this appeal of the opioids as an answer to pain and, frankly, because this idea of a right to pain relief is so intuitive, it's so appealing uh, to Americans. Well, you t- I want to take you back a little bit because you give examples in the book of patients, like patients who uh, who, who requesting the opioids to relieve the pain, but in fact, even giving them I don't I, ibuprofen works just as well. The, uh, the, I mean, that was one example I remember. And uh, a recent a friend of mine just had a broke his hip. And uh, immediately after the, it didn't even have surgery, but yeah, he was prescribed opioids, which he took for two days and then decided, you know, I can just take ibuprofen or whatever, and it works just as well. And and that was it. But I mean, he was the one who made that decision, not, not really the physician. So, uh, but the, the automatic response, it seems if you post-surgery or uh, recuperating from a, a mold hip in this case is to give the patient opioids. Yeah, that's the traditional teaching. I certainly was taught that in medical school that for severe pain, the standard is morphine or similar drugs like oxycodone, oxycontin. Those are the drugs that you really use for severe pain. But like you're saying, we have recently learned that there are many situations where an non-steroidal anti-inflammatory like ibuprofen works just as well with less risk. For example, you know, we have about 5 million wisdom teeth extractions per year in the U.S. And many, and that usually happens with teenagers, and many of those teenagers were getting a month of opioids after a wisdom teeth extraction. And we found that about 1% of those teenagers would become long-term opioid users, meaning a year after their wisdom teeth were out, they were still taking opioids. So acute use, short-term use of opioids does hold some risk of long-term use of opioids, and that sets people up for opioid misuse, abuse, and potentially addiction. It's something that we are starting to get a handle on, uh, like you talked about, some patients are kind of uh, taking themselves off opioids quicker. There's also been uh, rules, for example, here in Washington State to reduce acute opioid prescribing to three or seven days rather than 30 days, with the result that people are on opioids for less time. It's Although in the popular press, we think of opioids as painkillers, that's really an inadequate understanding of what they do. You know, our endogenous opioid system, that's the opioid system in our own brains where the endorphins and the encephalins work. Opioids have many functions. They're one of the main stress modulators in the brain. They regulate reproductive function and a lot of other endocrine activities. So it's a misunderstanding to label 
opioids as painkillers. I mean, that's a, a legacy from just short-term use in the hospital. But in fact, when you start giving patients opioids around the clock for years at a time, you're very much altering and perhaps damaging that internal opioid system that regulates, for example, social bonds in humans are opioid supported and regulated. So let's talk about, um, you know, a holistic approach to pain management um, because that's what you do and a, a, a holistic multidisciplinary approach, a personalized approach to pain management. Um, and people have obviously different attitudes. And uh, as you mentioned in the book, uh, I mean, I've had three kids without any kind of um, medication. It's the most painful, <laughs> speak, talk to any woman, the, the, you know, one of the most painful experiences one can have, but there's joy at the end of it. So that kind of pain is, so, is a very, you have a very different attitude towards that kind of pain as opposed, I assume, I've never had cancer, but the pain that you get, you know, from chemotherapy and from cancer itself, there's a whole different attitude towards that. There's nothing joyful about it. So let's, can we, can you kind of um, maybe talk more about the different attitudes and the different experiences of pain? Um, it depend on what the end, what the end game is, I guess. Yeah, I think you're pointing out something very important we get totally fixated on the intensity of pain as if that was the be-all and end-all of pain. But you're highlighting the fact that a very important other dimension in pain is the meaning of pain. So if uh, I have not given birth to any children, but I have, you know, run uh, marathons, uh, half marathons, where, like you said, the pain of completing the race is tempered by joy. And I, I want to use this as an opportunity to say that we have translated pain treatment or pain management into uh, pain reduction, specifically the right to a reduced pain score. We're all very familiar with the zero to 10 pain intensity scale that we are given in doctor's offices and patients have learned these and they say, doc, my pain is a 10 out of 10. And what they want is a reduction to a six out of 10 or a four out of 10. And that really points us toward the opioids because that's one of the few medications or treatments of any kind that can lower pain in a quick way. Other forms of pain treatment and pain uh, management can do a lot of other things. Uh, mindfulness, for example, doesn't directly lower pain scores, but it does decrease the uh, impact of the pain in your life. Um, it's possible to uh, increase uh, your ability to do activities, and your pain reduction can follow rather than proceed that increase in activities. So we have kind of a simplistic view that pain scores, pain intensity has to be reduced before any kind of recovery from chronic pain is possible. And it's just not true. We can uh, do it other ways. 
Yeah, and speaking of doing it other ways, if you think about your uh, one's children and they fall, they hurt themselves, they're screaming and crying in pain, and you hug them and kiss them and hold them, and a minute later they're uh, you know they're they're not in pain anymore and they're running off and, and playing. It's not that you've given them any medication, but you've given them that that you know hug them and kiss them and made them feel better, and their attitudes toward the pain or they forgot the pain has changed dramatically. Yes, very important lesson. You have, of course, provided them um, very valuable pain treatment, which is you've provided them reassurance and love that they will be okay. You're you're their mother. They trust you. And you are saying that this boo-boo, this injury that they suffered by falling down isn't going to destroy them. It isn't going to change their lives, everything is going to be able to go on as before. And we have, I think, um, minimized and disrespected how important this kind of reassurance is, because uh, many pain complaints will get better. And even those that uh, may not get better quickly, um, it may be best not to jump into aggressive medical treatment. Sometimes reassurance is the best thing that we can do. Uh, We argue in the book that in general, we need to not intensify the medical treatment of chronic pain, but de-intensify, de-medicalize that treatment, turning not only to non-opioid medications, but non-medication therapies. There are many ways to uh, reinforce, enhance, and strengthen the body's own ability to uh, control and manage pain. And these don't have the risks of addiction or overdose that the opioids do. Changing your behavior. You're the psychiatrist. As you're talking, I'm thinking about uh, distra- the word distractions comes up. It's meditation. I mean, there are lots of different, and maybe you could, we only have about four minutes left, but uh, people who sit in their houses or their apartments and they're in pain and they are isolated, as you mentioned before, and they are just uh, dwelling on their pain. Uh, the pain becomes more painful. But if you distract yourself, if you do other things, if you engage in something else besides the pain, I think, I don't know if it actually changes. You mentioned the brain. Are there changes in the brain and the endorphins and those kinds of things if you actually change your behavior? Uh, We believe that there is. I don't think that's been investigated thoroughly, but uh, there's a whole branch of pain psychology Uh, called acceptance and commitment therapy that says the clue to recovery in chronic pain is investment in valued activities. And if you do that, then you can also increase your pain acceptance. So that is a path out of chronic pain. Now, I want to just highlight that mindfulness is in a way the opposite of distraction from pain. Because when we train patients in mindfulness techniques, we train them to attend to their pain and to look at it with curiosity, even to befriend their pain, because so much of the problem of pain, so much of the suffering of pain is our fear of it, our resistance to it. And 
we can somewhat magically transform it by just looking straight at it without fear, and uh, it transforms in amazing ways. So we're changing our attitude toward pain. Um, I think we're going to have to say goodbye on that one. Um, I've been talking to Dr. Mark Sullivan. He's an MD, a PhD, and his new book is The Right to Pain Relief and Other Deep Roots of the Opioid Epidemic. So, uh, Dr. Sullivan, give us some uh, websites or uh, other places we can go for more information about the book and about you and your work. Okay. So the book is available... uh at Amazon. It's available through Oxford University Press, who are the publisher. Um, There's more information about the book and other things that I am doing on markdsullivan.org. And uh, thank you for your uh, attention and uh, curiosity about this topic. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 